Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my friend and comrade Danny Bessner, and we are very pleased to welcome to the program Ashoka Modi. Uh, Ashoka is the Charles and Marie Robertson Visiting Professor in International Economic Policy and Lecturer in Public and International Affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. He's formerly uh, from the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, and he has written a book entitled India is Broken, A People Betrayed, Independence to Today. Uh, Dr. Modi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so... Dr. Modi, I think the title of your book actually lends itself to a very easy opening question. Uh, how is India broken? What's the argument that you're uh, making in the book? Well, I, there are three, three ways in which India is broken. For almost 75 years, it has struggled to provide jobs, particularly good jobs. And today stands at a juncture where the possibility of meeting the demand that's likely to arise over the next decade seems almost insurmountable to me. A related issue is that India has failed in providing what I call public goods or what economists call public goods. It's done poorly in education and health and in other matters like the quality of cities and particularly the judicial system and the environment, it is falling well behind what it should be. And underpinning both these failures of jobs and public goods, which represent the lived reality of people, is a gradual and steady erosion of social norms and public accountability. And the last in particular is important because it has placed India in a catch-22 position. And what I mean by that is that unaccountable politicians do not impose accountability on themselves. And so we have reached a stage where it seems to me that the likelihood that there will be accountability is low. And so if the accountability is low then the jobs and public goods problem is likely to continue to be aggravated. So your book is, of course, a history. So what do you see as the sources of these three breaks, <laughs> these, these three problems with India? So in the preface to my book, I use the phrase, this book is a history to inform the present. What I mean by that is that there is no particularly Indian feature that has led to this. There's no historical Indian characteristic or antecedent. What I see is that there were critical junctures where wrong decisions were made and those then began to accumulate over time. So the the first 17 years under the Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru began with a strategy for heavy industrialization. 
in a country that had a vast amount of surplus labor. So job creation got low priority. That period also saw a period of somewhat gradual but noticeable erosion of social norms. And then when the next prime minister came, she had a difficult situation and she did, she made a difficult situation much worse. And so history just kept accumulating in ways from starting then to a point that by the early 80s, you had the start of criminals coming into politics. And that process then fed on itself because criminals were very attractive to political parties. They came with bags of money and often represented themselves as Robin Hood persona. And so there were little things that kept happening, and but they kept accumulating. And the process therefore never reset. In the 80s, you also then had the rise of Hindu nationalism. And that again had very different priorities. So uh, there was no one particular event but accumulation that occurred. So, so let's talk about that. What, did, what, do you, what is your issue with Nehru? Maybe we could talk a little bit about partition um, and you could say, why did India take these accumulating decisions over the course of the last 70 years? What, what was the concern with Nehru? Maybe talk a little bit about the larger regional context and international context of the Cold War within which he was operating. Um, and then we could go from there. That's very good. So, so Nehru uh, was a modernizer. He was a man of great personal integrity. He was very uh, a man who believed in democracy, in the institutions of democracy. And for that, he's remembered. He was loved then, and he was elected multiple times by the Indian public. But he he followed a strategy of heavy industrialization that was a, an element of his view of modernization. And because he was elected with such overwhelming majorities, he really had no, no counterweight to him. And that, that, that strategy continued in large part because of the uh, concern that you have raised. It was a, especially when President uh, John F. Kennedy acquired power. Kennedy was very, had great respect for Nehru and saw, in in fact, in his first State of the Union address, made a special reference to Nehru and the idealism of Nehru. And that was a period when the heavy industrialization strategy had clearly failed in the sense that it had led to a very large amount of demand for uh, dollars, Indian financial reserves, were very low, there was high inflation, and and Kennedy, well-meaning again, thought that financing India was a good idea. But that financing of India, which Kennedy used American resources and also brought the World Bank into the picture, led to a continuation of what was an obviously flawed strategy. Can we actually talk about that for a second? What was flawed about the industrialization strategy, right? Because this is a story of the post-colonial state in the second half of the 20th century, is that they're going to try to modernize and they're going to try to develop to compete with the what 
we now call the global north. Was there what was there a different option? Should Nehru have done something else? Um, so our listeners are pretty sophisticated, so we could get into you know this whole problem of modernization. So I I, I will then in that case uh, repeat a sentence that. Uh, Milton Friedman made. Now, Milton Friedman is known as a, as a guru of market economics, but Milton Friedman came to India in 1955 as a development economist. He came for, to give advice to the finance minister. And what Friedman said is, was 100% correct. He said, India is using capital too inefficiently by using lots of capital for this heavy industrialization, employing very little of labor which is India's major resource. And on the other hand, it is trying to build the handloom sector where it is using too much of the labor with very little of capital. What India needs is something intermediate, something that is light industry where capital and labor have a more appropriate mix. And that was the strategy that the Japanese had followed in the past 50 odd years. So the the way I set it up is to say that the country that had most recently industrialized and become an industrial power was was Japan. And Japan had done three things that India under Nehru did not do. One is Japan made a massive investment in agriculture where the bulk of the labor force is. Uh, India did not do that. Japan also made a huge investment in primary and secondary education, a huge investment. India did not do that. India, in fact, failed. And one of the perennial failures since then has been a failure of in education. It's, it's, it's sort of an odd thing to say because you see in Silicon Valley all these very gee whiz CEOs of uh, uh, major companies who are of Indian origin and yes, you know, I also belong to that same group of people who had world-class education. But for the vast majority of Indian kids, schooling is, is, is abysmal. So just one quick question on that when you compare it to Japan. Japan is more than 10 times smaller than India. So how do you address this question of size and scale, which to me, I'm an Americanist, I don't know, but India is so gigantic that when we talk about it as a quote-unquote nation state, it seems to be a little bit different than when we're talking about Japan or Germany or even the United States. Do you mind just talking about that issue, which seems foundational? Very good. You're asking all the uh, important questions. Uh, So I'm not saying here that Japan is necessarily replicable on an Indian scale. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. The question I'm asking is, what did India need to do? India needed to do to improve productivity in agriculture. India needed to educate its kids. And India needed to do uh, a, create a labor-intensive manufacturing industry. Those were the three things that Japan had done, true on a a, a much smaller country. The question was whether India could do it at least in certain parts of the country to create models that could then get replicated and spread. But India never even made an effort in any part of the country 
to do any of those three things. The result was that 17 years into independence when Pandit Nehru died, the poverty rate was pretty much unchanged from the start of, uh, from the point of independence. The backlog of jobs had increased, which meant that the number of people who wanted jobs was rising at a faster pace than the population coming in. And India was still exporting jute and textiles in 1964 as it was in 1947. So there was a, to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying there was no progress. There was progress in building uh, heavy machinery, in building locomotives, in building aircraft. And some of those skills, particularly in the aerospace industry, have had long-lasting effects. So India has significant capability in some of these areas. But what I'm asking is, from the point of view of the lived reality of people, jobs, education, health, dealing with a bureaucracy that is relatively corruption-free, and going about their lives in a way that they can believe that their kids will have better lives. It's in those senses that though that period left behind a sense of deep social anxiety, which then led to protests and began this an initial phase of rise of Hindu nationalism towards the end of the Nehru period. It's very interesting because, it, you know, I would say similar things about the United States, about corruption, about lack of education, about an oligarchical elite seizing power. And it leads me to question whether the issue might be capitalism itself or capitalist-led development. But that's an issue for another time. Probably, Derek, please. Professor, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the political decisions that that put India in this in this state. What explains the failure to invest in education? What explains this kind of hyper-focus on very capital-intensive, on the one hand, and, and sort of uh, industry that, that doesn't uh, create enough jobs for such a large population? Uh, one of the things that, that I think your book talks about very uh, eloquently is the problem of sort of people who are invisible in Indian society. There, there are, uh, you know, you see the people at the top of the scale, at the top of the scale, you see people who are at the bottom who are critically poor and, and, you know, in critical need of food. But there's this huge chunk of folks who are not critically poor. They're not critically, you know, starving, but they're, they are poor and they are hungry and they're just sort of lost in the morass. And I, I wonder what the, the political decisions were that, that put India on this path. So one of the questions that I struggled with right through the book is why does democracy not give a voice to the kinds of people that you're talking about? And over time, that has changed. So I, I have followed essentially the guidance of a, a political philosopher named Robert Dahl, Robert Dahl, you might know, was a Yale political theorist. Very anti-democratic in his opinion, sort of his skepticism of mass democracy. And this is something that I, I write about like Dahl's generation. But, uh, but please continue, sorry. 
Okay, well, so Dahl has this beautiful book called uh, Who, Who Governs? So the question he asks is, in a democracy, the principle is that the people's voice should be represented by political parties who then should be the governing uh, force to implement the people's voice. And he says that 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 process goes wrong in several instances. Number one, when there is a very charismatic leader who is able to get voted without having to deliver on the needs of people. And Nehru fell very much squarely into that category. He was a, a very beloved person. People of my father's generation adored him. In fact, one of my father's regrets, he saw my book just before he passed away, but he was very sorry that I was not more uh, effusive about Nehru. And uh, I, I kept trying to tell him, Papa, why are you, why are you upset? I mean, don't you see that he did not educate the kids? Don't you see that he did not create jobs? And he said, yeah, but he was a very good man. So the problem is that Nehru was indeed a very good man. He had, he had shepherded India through a, the freedom struggle along with Mahatma Gandhi. He was Mahatma Gandhi's right-hand man. And for that people, for that reason, he was elected repeatedly by large majorities. And he had no, no, he was accountable only to himself. Now, he was a good man in the sense that he was not corrupt, but he was also very much in the clouds as the Times of India said, described him, which meant that he saw the corruption, but he was not willing to handle it, to deal with it, to stem its rot. So the 1964, towards the end of the Nehru period, there is a major report by the National Parliament, the Lok Sabha, which talks about how corruption has spread in the country, not only in the bureaucracy, in the infrastructure projects, but also in the judiciary. So the process, the rot had begun to set in, in a way without anybody acknowledging that rot, as such that when Mrs. Gandhi becomes Prime Minister in 1966, the, there is deep social unrest. There, is, there are protests, student protests, there are workers' protests, there's high inflation, there's sense of joblessness. And so he, he leaves a legacy where you needed then somebody committed to the, to the prospect of reestablishing a democratic base. And Mrs. Gandhi chose to do otherwise. Mrs. Gandhi is pivotal to my story because Mrs. Gandhi's is the period when there was an active undermining of social norms and accountability. Could you talk maybe for a second about the legacies of colonialism and how that informs the early history of India? So it, it seems to me that that's, the structural conditions aren't great from the beginning due to British colonialism. The, the structural, so the same things that I've just been talking about, India, India did not have virtually per capita income growth was virtually zero for the 50 years before independence. Agriculture was in very dire straits. Education was poor. 
and India was essentially manufacturing jute and textile products and, and exporting tea. So the colonial legacy was indeed a dire one. Now there are uh, colonial historians who will also tell you that the British, uh, you know, uh, stole uh, resources from India. But the bottom line is the starting point that we see is the one that independent India inherited. So the, in other words, at the very least, we can confidently say that the Brits did very little to develop India and probably probably stole from it. That history then in a post-independence India, there was a moment of huge acceleration. So, so the people who justify the heavy industrialization say, well, we thought we were a modern nation. We had lost track of science and technology as a driving force of the economy and we were trying to bring it back into the system. And that is the justification for the rapid... The, the thesis was that heavy industry would create such enormous activity and such huge prosperity very quickly that it would spread through, this, through the economic process. And that was never realistic and never happened and its consequences were very severe as a result. So uh, let's let's move into the uh, the prime ministership of Indira Gandhi because as you already alluded to, there seems to be a, a shift from um, in terms of we're not just sort of getting some things wrong, but uh, we're deliberately undermining uh, progress. And I, I'm quite right. Taught there are decisions that are being made that are intentionally, you know, counter to the the best interests of the country. Can you uh, talk about some of those decisions and and why they were made? So, so Mrs. Gandhi inherited this difficult situation, and she was also somebody who was extremely focused on maintaining her own power. Plus, she had this son uh, whose name is Sanjay and uh, Sanjay Gandhi was for some reason that nobody has quite unearthed uh, a very close confidant of hers and somebody she relied on hugely. It's that combination. So she, she inherits the situation and she says, okay, now what am I going to do with it? There's some risk that she might and be sort of upstaged by the protests. She might lose power. So she makes all kinds of efforts to retain the power. And very early on, her son's corruption begins to get in the way. So one of the ways in which she tried to establish her credentials on her claim on power was by overnight nationalizing the major banks in the country. And she did that completely without any regard for the economics of it. She did it as a way to claim that she was a socialist. The word socialist at that time meant that I am for the people and that these banks are being managed by very rich people and I'm going to use the resources for general upliftment of the people. 
But from almost the get-go, the the nationalized banks became uh, personal piggy banks of the rich and powerful, starting with her son, who used it, uh, who, who used his political clout to extract funds from them at low rates and, and without the proper paperwork and collateral. So she's the, the corruption there was clearly evident. Then election expenses started mounting. So she developed relationships with businessmen of various kinds. At the same time as the social protests increased, she began a process which culminates today in a very extreme form of using the coercive power of the state to suppress social protests. She initially tried to use the police and then she also started bringing in the army when there were protests that became unmanageable. And finally, she, in, she injected colonial-style preventive detention laws, which meant that people could be uh, arbitrarily arrested on some charge of, well, maybe terrorist or some unspecified charges without any right to being charged formally in a courtroom or released on bail. So this, this notion of preventive detention, which he injected, then became a toolkit of governance and has remained a toolkit ever since, most sort of egregiously used in the last 10 years or so under the current regime. So the mix of corruption, the unaccountability, the street fighting nature of politics, the use of her son to do all kinds of things on her behalf, culminated then into the so-called emergency in 1975-76, which was a period of unvarnished dictatorship, came out of it, Coming out of it did not mean that she'd lost her, her style of working. She continued on the style of working. And by the time she left, India was somewhat less poor, somewhat less poorer than at the start of the Nehru period. But by now, she had legitimized a certain style of behavior in, in politics. And by the early 80s, she had also, through her son Sanjay, started bringing in criminals into the political process, initially to help win election through their muscle power, but increasingly through the use of their financial resources. And it's not clear to me whether somebody charged with serious crimes actually fought an election during Mrs. Gandhi's period. But by then, the popular culture in the movies was already beginning to show you this new new politician who was both a criminal and a politician mixed up with the police. And so the, the blurring of lines between crime and politics begins uh, towards the end of Mrs. Gandhi's period. Could you talk about that for a little bit? Because, you know, we have criminal politicians in this country, too. You might point to Donald Trump. But so what is this class? And what do you mean by 
criminal specifically? Because there are obviously arrangements where, you know, speaking of Japan, you know, there's like a concordat between quote unquote criminals in the state. You could say the same about Mexico in terms of the, the drug war and things like that. So, so who exactly are these people? Where are they coming from? And how are they different from the previous generations of Indian political leaders very specifically? Because this is such an important turning point, hinge point in your book. When Mrs. Gandhi leaves, tragically, she is shot dead by her bodyguards. There is a phase of hope when her son becomes prime minister. Now, this is a different son because Sanjay was himself, uh, he, he sort of self-destructed in uh, flight above the skies of Delhi. Uh, he was flying a, one of these small pits uh, planes and he crashed. But uh, her, her older son, Rajiv, then becomes prime minister. And, you know, uh, just just to sort of make a brief uh, passing comment on Indian democracy, you know, India is considered a democracy and in many ways it is. But the fact that uh, Rajiv Gandhi becomes prime minister just because he's Mrs. Gandhi's son shows already in 1984 how personalized Indian democracy had become. She 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 dies in the morning and in the evening, uh, he's sworn in as prime minister. There's no due process. There's no no election. There's no he he's, he is no national stature as a leader. Nevertheless, there's a moment of hope. He's a young guy. He's computer savvy. Computers are just coming in. He knows how to use Lotus One Two Three, which is sort of the spreadsheet of the day. And there is a sort of a sense that maybe he will clean up Indian politics. His, he campaigns then uh, with a broom in his hand. Uh, the posters have him with a broom in his hand that he's going to clean out Indian corruption. Rajiv was sort of an unfortunate figure because I'm sure he meant well, but he was swept away by the forces of history. He was swept away also because he tried to play politics with religion. Uh, he tried to appease the Hindus and the Muslims and in the process let the sort of his Hindu appeasement uh, let loose the forces, the gale force of Hindu nationalism. I want to step back here one second now to trace the Hindu nationalism uh, phenomenon which goes back at least to the early part of the 20th century. And it was always in the bloodstream of the Indian political process. But first Mahatma Gandhi and then Mrs. Uh, and then Jawaharlal Nehru kept it at bay. So Michael Waltz, uh, who was a professor until recently at the Institute of Advanced Studies at uh, Princeton, wrote a little book, a very magnificent book called Secular Revolutions and religious counter-revolutions. This was maybe four or five years ago. And in that he said that countries, when they emerge from colonialism, find the, the moment of freedom as a unifying force. And that unifying force keeps them going for some time. But then the 
glow of freedom begins to wane. And at that time, traditional historical identities begin to re-emerge. And there is a great risk that there will then be a religious counter-revolution. And he uses the examples of Algeria and Israel and India. And I think his, I don't know so much about either Algeria or Israel, but his description for India fits well. This was the moment when now we are approximately uh, four decades after independence. There is great social stress and anxiety in the economy and society. The the norms are beginning to erode. And this moment at which Rajiv Gandhi plays fast and loose with religious politics and so the Hindu nationalist force already latent in the system emerged as a gale force. And Rajiv then leaves and we have a period now of a very interesting period in the 90s where... You've got all these, this what I call the dark underbelly, contesting a more modernizing, liberalizing Indian economy. And it's that context, that contest that begins to play out in the 90s. Just, just very quickly, we haven't talked much, that much about the larger geopolitical context within which India is operating. Is there anything you'd want to say about the Cold War, the, the way it tried to play the Soviet Union and the United States off of one another? Or is this primarily a domestic story? Because it seems to me that processes of modernization and development are necessarily international and geopolitical. So I was just wondering if you wanted to talk at all about that before we get into the domestic politics uh, of the 90s and on. Okay, very good. So, so I think the most important phase in terms of geopolitics is the Nehruvian phase, especially the 60s. Uh, approximately the last years of uh, President Eisenhower and then the term of John F. Kennedy, which is when this, this is a, this is a very crucial moment in global history at that time. If you remember, uh, I'm now forgetting the exact date, I think October 57 is the launch of the Sputnik uh, by the, the Soviets. President Kennedy writes a piece in the Foreign Affairs at that time talking about how this is a moment of reckoning. Some months later, he writes an op-ed in the New York Times. And on both occasions, he refers specifically to India as a, as a wedge between communist and capitalist societies in the world and that having India on our side is so crucially important. And that leads to the foreign aid program generated first by by the Americans and then by the World Bank and so on. After that, the geopolitics, in my view, has a muted role. Mrs. Gandhi maintains more or less this sort of uneasy relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. She comes to meet uh, President Johnson. That's her first state visit. 
it's a very warm visit, but then she pisses him off because she's also trying to play with the with the Russians, and she's not being sufficiently supportive uh, of the American efforts in Vietnam, quite rightly so in my mind. Uh, nevertheless, he's pissed off by that, and so there is there is a lot of tension on the food aid. Those, in my view, are important for com- the completion of the story, but not necessarily strategically important in terms of how India evolved in- during her period. I don't think geopolitics specifically conditioned her behavior. And again, then if we come into the, by the 90s, uh, India is now in a financial crisis uh, in '91, and the one of the one of the legacies of the Nehru period is these strong controls on imports and industrial production. So what happens is that when he tries to mindlessly pursue this heavy industrialization strategy the demand for foreign exchange becomes so huge for the imports of all the inputs that are needed into this industrialization process without a corresponding ability to export and pay for those imports. The forces that are therefore unleashed begin to stymie Indian industry also because of all these constraints. And India desperately needs to get rid of those controls And that happens in 1991 as part of what is rightly celebrated as a moment of liberalization. That's also the time when India devalues its currency, which was hugely overvalued by then. And there there is a moment of hope. There's a moment of hope, but here again, I call that an all too brief moment of sanity. And I call it an all too brief moment of sanity because even at that moment, while the market liberalization was beginning to occur, the provision of public goods, education, health, and all these public goods that I listed for you does not occur. And this is, this is, this is still a problem in the Indian debate that there's, there's a sense that India can develop on the cheap without human development, without livable cities, etc. Isn't that just capitalism, though? This is what capital does. Capital invests in its own profit-making. It doesn't invest in public goods. I mean, the story of the 90s onward is basically that story in every country. So, I, I mean, do, I just don't see a world in which you get market liberalization and the investment in public goods, particularly after the Soviet Union falls apart and liberals ba- don't have to don't have an enemy that they have to basically compete with. It seems to me that the Indian story is repeated everywhere in the world, including in the United States. Well, certainly in the United States. So, I mean, so let me just, uh, just on the United States, let me make a brief comment before. I, I fundamentally agree with what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not a correct statement. In the United States, you, you have to remember that a, the U.S. had almost uh, 100% primary enrollment uh, probably before the civil war and certainly in in by the 1880s by the in early 1900s america had a world class uh, secondary education system so america 
started with this huge advantage in education and then the land grants and so on and built all these uh, universities. The Japanese, as, as I said, the Japanese actually consciously imitated the Americans. After the Meiji Revolution in 1868, the Japanese ambassador to the United States was a 25-year-old man whose explicit mission was to learn about the American education system. So, the Odette Galore has this book recently, I think, called The Journey of Humanity. And he says that there is no country in the world since the Industrial Revolution that has made economic progress without doing two things. Educating its children on a mass basis and bringing more women into the workforce. And so you might be right uh, in this in, in saying that so-called capitalism uh, seen in that narrow sense uh, does not provide public goods, correct. But therefore, it also means that India is lacking a very fundamental source of long-term development. Professor Murray, maybe we could continue on uh into the, you know, through the 90s, into the 2000s. I know what people will be most interested in is understanding uh, the rise of, uh, you know, I mean, you've talked about the the sort of low level of Hindu nationalism or the kind of background uh, level of Hindu nationalism, but they're going to want to understand the rise of Narendra Modi and this very muscular Hindutva uh, way of doing politics and how that relates to the uh, the story of the Indian economy over this period. Can you kind of uh, just lay that out for, sketch that out for people? So, so my understanding is that there are two forces going on. One is there is a inherent advantage to movements such as Hindu nationalism because they create a, a, a sense of identity and they create a sense of identity through a process of friend versus enemy. You're, you're either my friend or enemy. And as uh, Karl, uh, what was the, Karl Schmidt, the German uh, uh, law, legal scholar who was also a pro-Nazi guy who wrote this very famous book. Uh, anyhow, the friend-enemy distinction, he said, is a very potent force in, in politics. And so it creates this sense of us versus them and is therefore an ex extremely strong galvanizing force in the political process. And if you have 80% of the population that are Hindus, that creates a huge natural constituency in terms of electoral uh, uh, possibilities. At the same time, the Congress party that was ruling the country in the early 2000s um, came on a mandate of uh, great, greater uh, social welfare, uh, better safety nets, more transparency. And yet it was a deeply pro-corporate interest uh, government for 10 years. So what happens at that time is that the country is moving despite its rhetoric and its sometimes even its policies towards a form of what I call a marauding capitalism. 
So it's not just capitalism in the sense that we understand it. It is a capitalism with very little regulation. Uh, it's a capitalism in which there's sort of a winner-take-all rampant process going on. Uh, destruction of natural resources. This is also the period when the environment, the, the, the pace of environmental degradation accelerates. And Narendra Modi presents himself as a person who will put this marauding capitalism on steroids. So he has this dual advantage. He presents himself to the elite as someone saying, you want capitalism, I'll give you capitalism. And he has a voter base of Hindu nationalist forces who constitute the mass. So this marauding capitalism is what he sold as what he called the Gujarat model of development, which was essentially the idea that I'll give you cheap land, no fuss environmental clearances, various subsidies, and go go forth and make profits. And these guys now in a different mode, a different context of history, continue to invest in extremely capital-intensive enterprises, petrochemicals, large chemical plants, all may be necessary, but again, poor job creation. So we have a new phase which is still capital-intensive because that's where the capitalists are making their money and that's where the subsidies and such like are. So Narendra Modi has this extremely strong advantage, which he then, after becoming prime minister, and by the way, when Narendra Modi was becoming, on the verge of becoming prime minister, the international elite applauded him. The Gujarat model of development was considered something very praiseworthy. The fact that it neglected human development, the fact that it neglected agriculture, was not on anyone's uh, part of anyone's commentary. And so he becomes prime minister. Election expenses are soaring. And he is able to tap into this, this business elite to finance his exp expenditures. 2017, he introduces something called the electoral bonds which is now a completely opaque system for big business to give political donations. And watchdogs who follow this say that something of the order of 80 to 90% of the funds coming in through electoral bonds are now uh, going to the BJP, which is the Bharatiya Janta Party of which he of which Narendra Modi is the head. So he acquires this enormous power through the capture of the business elite, through a captive Hindu nationalist uh, voting base, plus huge amounts of campaign funds. And we have the past nine years go by the forces of Hindu nationalism remain extremely strong. 
here's one last sort of conceptually important theme that I want to inject on how Indian democracy works today. The Indian voter is the vast majority. Okay, so there are two Indians. There's one very elite India that lives first world lives. And that's the that's the India that you're going to see uh, in uh, in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and such like. There's this sort of what I call the Thomas Friedman style journalism where you, you go in, meet a few billionaires, get taken on curated tours of India, and you come back and say India's on the move. Uh, and then you have the rest of India, and that India deals with the trepidations of life on a continuously struggling basis. What the politicians have learned is that rather than give them reliable, high-quality public services, give them freebies, give them gifts, give them so many units of free electricity, so many units of free water. At election time, give them some cash, give them some liquor, give them uh, a laptop, maybe a, a scooter, and that you buy the loyalty of the voter who is feeling deprived and is therefore utterly grateful for these gifts. And so a, a, a very odd relationship has developed where voters will, in some sense, vote against their own material interests because in the short run, they are happy to get these gifts. And so the, the politicians have begun to buy loyalty through this process. And there's a scramble going on, which will at some point, I don't know how it's going to get reflected in the budgets of the different state governments. But that is now the equilibrium where gifts, Hindu nationalism, large campaign expenditures, though that's sort of the driving force of Indian democracy, the result is the judicial system is broken, the environmental degradation is happening at an extraordinary pace. And the climate crisis is already in India. The heat waves, uh, deaths have, cum have started accumulating. Last year, 2022, was a very strong heat year. This year, again, is likely to be repeated. Coastal erosion is going on. Cyclonic patterns are changing. Glaciers are melting in the Himalayas. And so India is reaching a certain point now where the past lack of investment in human capital, in environmental capital, though that is going to interact in a very sort of gargantuan way with an impending climate crisis in a way that I'm not sure India is prepared to deal with, plus the jobs backlog continues to increase. I, I don't think I could manufacture a better place to close, but I do want to ask one final question to bring us back to the Cold War talk, because I know people will be interested in this as well. We're now, of course, in the uh, quote-unquote new Cold War, and India is a key 
part of the U.S. you know firewall that that it's trying to build in the Indo-Pacific uh, around China. How do you envision that impacting uh, in terms of foreign investment? I mean, we've seen things like the I2U2 group, which seems to be so far a mechanism for fundal- funneling uh, UAE investments into India. But how do you uh, do? You, do you see these things? Uh, these geopolitical elements having a, a, a role in uh, what happens in India moving forward. What do you? What do you? What's the dynamic there? I think this is a very fluid situation right now. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a very precise answer. I think, I think, it depends a lot on how the Indian economy evolves in the short run. If my Now I'm going to put on my former IMF hat and do some projections of a short-term nature. What happened was that during COVID, India more so than other economies yo-yoed a lot. And sometime last year, it started pulling back from the fall in COVID. And that rise was misinterpreted as rapid growth. So, you know, so the dead cat bounce was mis, misinterpreted as a, as a rapid growth. And so all these agencies and the private sector people are projecting India to have very rapid GDP growth. Notice I've not talked about GDP growth because it's not translated into jobs, but I have a feeling that even the metric that the world watches is beginning to go, will, will start disappointing over the next few years. The, if that happens, some of the glow will wear off. We are already seeing what in India people call the K-shaped recovery. Uh, Lambo, Lamborghinis are selling, but scooters are not. And so the social divergences are also going to get accentuated. There is some chatter now that although Narendra Modi's hold on power and likelihood of winning in 2024 remains high, there's some possibility that he might not actually win. Not clear to me that that's the case, but we are in a fluid, both in economic and uh, political sense, in a fluid situation, which could come out making things better, but could at least for a short period of time my short period, I mean three, four years, have a relatively uncertain and potentially chaotic situation. Therefore, in this situation where people are thinking of India as a wedge in, in, the, in the geopolitical process, I think was never plausible, I think will become increasingly implausible. And therefore, those who are seeing India and are at this point ignoring the kinds of problems India has as well, you know, they will pass. Um, I think I'm making a serious mistake. I think there's people are making a serious error of judgment in thinking of India as some kind of a counterweight to various forces that they want to, to want in, for which they want India on their side. 
Ashoka Modi, again, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. The book is India is Broken and People Betrayed Independence to Today. If you have any interest in understanding what's going on in India, please pick it up. It's a tour de force. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Modi, so much. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Such such interesting questions. You've obviously thought about these issues so, so intently. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been It's been an honor to have you.